A fiction writer builds a story and a world, one that either has never existed or one that looks very much like our own. Our guest today, Devereaux Shivington Stebbins, built a story based on real characters during and after the American Civil War. She invites us into their adventures in Western North Carolina in her book, Fall from Snowbird Mountain. It was recently published by Jumpmaster Press. She joins us to talk about that world and how she came to write about it. Welcome to Dialogues with Creators. I am the host, Barbara G. Tucker. Today is February 25th, 2023, and it is the first episode of this podcast, 2023. I have a plan for eight to 10 podcasts to be relate, released over the next three to four months. I know some podcasters put out a podcast every day or twice a week or once a week, and I'm hoping to focus more on quality than quantity right now. As I talk to very people in our region and hopefully beyond, who use their God-given creativity to express themselves and to enrich their community. I hope to talk to visual artists and musicians, educators, and even other types of creators in this season of podcasts, as well as writers, which is what we have today, a discussion on writing. I plan to have a panel discussion on creativity as well. Today, I'm pleased to say our guest is Devereaux Shivington Stebbins, Her most recent accomplishment as an author, and she has many, is that she has just published Fall from Snowbird Mountain, which was published by Jumpmaster Press of Birmingham, Alabama. She published it under her pen name of C.S. Devereaux, and the link to where you can buy it will be in the show notes. Hello, Devereaux, and welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Barbara, and thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I have been looking forward to doing this ever since I found out that your book was going to be published by uh, Jumpmaster, which we're going to get into a little bit. But I wanted to talk about the title because titles are so important to novels and any book, of course. The name Snowbird Mountain might ring a bell for some listeners, and that's where I'm going to start. This is a real place, right? What can you tell us about Snowbird Mountain? Well, in uh, western North Carolina, there is actually a Snowbird Mountain range, just like the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, And rather than call it Snowbird Mountains, Snowbird Mountain sounded better for the title, and uh, it, it just worked better. And the fall is just metaphorically the fall of this this man, my protagonist, Jason Hyde. Excellent. So I want to get into enough of the story to pique people's interests, but obviously not give it away. So because it's a fascinating book and I have read portions of it, and which we'll also get into. And it's amazing. So what is the story behind the story of your book? In other words, how did you come to this story and this work? Okay, well, prior to writing it, I had been writing memoirs, so I was writing nonfiction. But I felt that that was uh, limiting me because 
besides writing nonfiction, I wrote short stories on the side that were purely fiction, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, it happened that I had just finished a memoir about a friend's mother, her life, which was really fascinating. Um, and another friend, when I told her about it, she said, oh, I'd like you to write the story of my mother. There was a terrible tragedy that happened in her family, and I want you to write about it. So I said, okay, let me look into it. So, But she couldn't tell me really anything about her family except for just that, because her mother refused to even talk about it, nor her aunts and uncles. It was really horrible. Um, and so I had to do a lot of research. And in doing that research, there were holes and, you know, um, unanswered questions. So I kept going backwards, going back deeper into her family history beyond that generation to find some answers. And when I came across her great-grandfather, Jason Hyde, he was such a colorful and complex figure that I felt that I needed to write his story. And uh, so that's what I did. Um, it takes place during the mid-1800s, primarily but not exclusively in Appalachia. And I decided to write Snowbird Mountain because of the grim parallels I saw in today's culture. Uh, I mean, we're 150, 160 years later and history is repeating itself. You know, uh, I think we all can agree to that. Um, but then, looking further into Jason's life and his fight for survival and the things he got involved in and uh, just everything that happened to him, I saw a sincere message about humanity. And so for all the bad in our role today, I'd like to believe there's hope for us in the end. Okay, I think that's that's a, a good start to our discussion. And I do agree that when you start to write fiction, I ran across a quote that said, fiction is the lie that tells the truth. And I found even in my own writing that there will be things that come out in the process of writing that I, I'm sort of, where did that come from that is so parallel to what's going on now? Like you say, that you hadn't expected that at the beginning, but it ended up being the case. Thank you for that. And so what would you like to tell us, building on that, about the plot without giving it away? Give us a, your hook, I suppose. Okay. Um, well, Fall from Snowbird Mountain opens in 1873. Jason is entering an Asheville courtroom, Asheville, North Carolina, and he's bound, shackled, and on trial for some serious crimes. Uh, he walks in, he absorbs his surroundings, he sees the cutting eyes of the onlookers in the gallery, then realizes he's been in that very courtroom once before for another dramatic trial where he testified as a witness. There, a boy attempted to murder him, and he thinks, I survived then. Will I survive this? So he peeks at the huddled clutch of prosecuting attorneys. There's a bunch of them, you know, all around the table. And he asks himself, that depends. How much do they know? At that point, we travel 12 years into the past to 1861 and the early months of the uh, Civil War to the beginning of the journey that led him to where he is now. So uh, all in all, it's a story of desperation and corruption in a time of civil unrest and division, but it's also about forgiveness, 
redemption, and renewal. Oh, wow. That ought to do it. <laughs> to the saying uh, about that I've heard from Stephen James, uh, a storyteller and novelist at a local conference, and he said, start with the snake. And his that phrase, of course, is metaphorical, but that you have to in the first, you know, page, two pages, three pages, you, you know, you have to hook people in. And that's, that's a hook because it's a trial and he's got memories and he, there's a question. You have a dramatic question up there and that's, oh, that's cool. Um, <laughs> so now that we know a little bit about your book, and again, I really want to recommend it to people. I think you will be very taken in with this book and just won't be able to put it down. I want to know a little bit about you. How did you get into writing? What was your past career? Things like that. Okay. Um, well, when I was about 12, I read To Kill a Mockingbird. And Harper Lee's words showed me that writing would give me a voice I couldn't have any other way. I have probably reread that book more than any other. And looking back, I think that was the catalyst that lit the fire inside me. Um, and the, But the reason I read it when I did was because a classmate, Philip Alford, was cast as Jim for the movie. And um, that, of course, was a very big deal in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and so while Phil was in Hollywood making a movie, I got a copy of the book and I read it. And uh, we all know about the book. Yeah, it addresses racial issues in the Deep South during the Depression. Um, and I grew up in Birmingham in the 1950s and, and 1960s. And even as a small child, I questioned the injustice and inequality that I saw around me. But I was told by all the adults to be quiet. Just, that's just the way things are. And it, it uh, the forced silence turned me into a really shy and withdrawn child. I wrote stories, you know, just, you know, behind closed doors, but I never, I was never satisfied them because my ideas were too big. And I never showed them to anybody. Uh, I didn't know enough about people at the time or the world that I lived in to create anything that I felt was worthy of showing. So while English teachers in high school and college encouraged me to write, I didn't know how to convey my thoughts and feelings in a way that would make people listen. So over time, uh, as an adult, I learned how to do that using my imagination. Um, the getting into my career, I don't even think of it as a career. They were, they were jobs, but... Um, I, I was a designer and an artist, so I guess that was a career. <laughs> but uh, I began as a flight attendant for TWA. So I was flying all over the world, number one. And I already wanted to go places and, and see the world. So I started with that. But that little venture uh, took me to work for a marketing company in LA. And uh, I used my uh, design skills that I didn't know I had at the time to um, expand their offices. And, and it, I mean, I wasn't a decorator, uh, just not really, but they were expanding globally. And so I was set all over the, you know, mostly Asia, but uh, a couple of places in, uh, in Europe, Austria, uh, England, and all by myself. And I had to find real estate space for the office and I had to design it. I was on a budget. Um, and so 
that's where I, you know, I learned how to how to design. <laughs> so that's why I guess I never really thought of it as a career. I just kind of, you know, fell into it. But I did that for a long time, and then finally wound up in Atlanta when they uh, revamped their Atlanta offices, and I stayed in Atlanta because it was basically home, even though you know, it was close to Birmingham. But I couldn't go back, you know, to Birmingham. It was too small at that point. And so I lived in Atlanta for a long time, and I began painting. And uh, while I did my design work, interior design, more res- residences at that point, and uh, then um, that led me into designing rugs and carpets. And um, so I decided I liked that more at, at that point in my life. And then that took me again, you know, a lot of places. Um, and I wound up living in New Jersey for a while and designing for five-star hotels. And, and even that took me to places I'd never been before around the world. And, um, and eventually to Chattanooga, where I live now. And um, so I did that until I retired, maybe, um, well, more than 10 years ago at this point. And so um, I was too busy living life to really write very much, but I kept journals. Um, and so it wasn't until I retired that I really began writing seriously. Over all those years, I was a voracious reader. And um, then, of course, the foreign travel stimulated a love for history. So um, after I retired, I devoted my time to writing and reading even more, and I began to write seriously. That is so interesting. I did not know that about your your background in design can i ask the, the listeners can't see this but you have a painting behind you did you do the oh, painting yes i did that came from a dream i had and oh. you know, I, I had this crazy dream um i well, i don't want to go into it on your podcast but anyway i woke up and uh i i, I painted it and so oh, that, you know that little figure you see in there is is me even though she has brown hair and at the time my hair was was like a, a dirty ash blonde but there was i had this this there was this thing about butterflies and 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 evolving from a giant lily pad you know just like you know being reborn and i was going through a time in my life where it seemed it felt like everything had caved in on me and i was being reborn spiritually so that's what that is about Oh, it's lovely. It's so colorful, too. The colors are very nice. Okay. Um, I it, When I hear your story, I think of several things. And this is a dialogue, so sometimes I come in with some things that may seem off the wall at the beginning, but they do have a point. <laughs> One is that your whole life experiences may seem unconnected but you were expanding yourself you were thinking about different cultures you were thinking about different people and i think that it comes out in what i've read of your fiction and uh i I think that's interesting the other is that a lot of people think well if you don't start writing when you're quite young you know seriously writing that you you're just never going to do it and that's just not right and i think it's it's true of sometimes we don't aren't able to get to our creative side until we're older and it's always there because we have our unconscious and our subconscious mind that is storing all kinds of things and they just need a framework and a 
an opportunity to be expressed if you're serious about it. Now, some people will say, and I know you've had people say this too, oh, I could write a book about my life. And I want to say, okay, <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. You know, I don't preach at them, but you know, and I know how much discipline it takes. Yeah, to, it really does. To write in everyday discipline and closing the door and not doing something else that may be fun. It, it, it's just takes a lot of discipline. But my husband has had an aunt. She's passed away now, but she had an aunt who took up painting in her 70s. And she had worked in a mill, cotton mill, all of her life. And she took up painting. And she did those Bob Ross lessons, you know, that we used to have back in the 70s. And I have one of her paintings she gave me. And I treasure that painting because it it looks like, I think she was trying to do a, a Van Gogh thing, um, it, which Van Gogh is very hard to pronounce the way it's supposed to be. Um, but anyway... I, because it's like um, zinnias or some sort of flowers like that. and But she did it when she was 80 years old. Yeah. You know, I just think it's amazing to me that she got into painting and expressed herself through painting when she was, you know, older. And uh, I, I don't, I, I like the idea that you had one set of jobs and career and then now you're able to do what you wanted to do back when you were 12. Right, exactly. Well, creativity is within us uh, and you know, I think we all have it. And in my life was all about creativity. I was creating in one way or another and now I'm just channeling it in a different direction and it is something that I wanted to do. And as it happened, both my parents wanted to be writers. My mother was a journalism major in college and then my father, um, well, originally he was following in his father's footsteps to be a, a, a mechanical engineer, but he wanted to write. And so he had this crazy story that he told me uh, to, I guess, to inspire me to go to college because I was considering not. Uh, I really didn't have a choice, but we were arguing about it. <laughs> and so... Um, I just I didn't want to be an art student. I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't. I was afraid to tell them that. And so anyway, he told me that he really wanted to be a writer, and there was this particular uh, author that he was crazy about. He'd read everything that he he had ever written, and he was going to be an adjunct professor at Alabama. He was currently going to Georgia Tech, and so he left in the middle of the night after at the beginning of freshman year so the freshman year had already started and he took a bus to tuscaloosa found where this uh found the writer's address in tuscaloosa and knocked on his door in the middle of the night got him out of bed and said i'm i love your writing i want to follow you i want to study you get me into school and the man did <laughs> so so he was he was um his dream he had this dream of being a budding young author and he met my mother on a blind date who was a journalism major and wanted to write in her way. And, you know, it clicked at least for about the next 18 or 20 years anyway. Mm -hmm. But, you know, reality set in once I was born and he realized now that he had a family to support, he had to go back to school. He went to night school, got his degree and became an amazing architect and engineer. And so um, 
he never really wrote anything again that I know of, but that was his dream. And my mother, um, she, you know, her dream, it was the 50s. You know, I, I was born in 49. So, you know, 1950s, women were not supposed to work. And she didn't quite, she, she missed graduating by a few months. So she didn't have her degree yet. So she never became the journalist that she wanted to become. But the, that desire was always there. So I think I must have the DNA inside of me. And so, yeah. And I also have some famous writers in, in my background. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe is an ancestor. And uh, there was another one, too, that I can't think of right now. But, yeah, so the genes are there. Who was the writer that your father wanted to emulate? I can't remember, but I actually met him but quite by accident. I was a freshman at Alabama, and he, he was no longer there. But he had come as to be a speaker for some event that I attended. And I didn't even know he was speaking, I don't think. I just went there with some friends. And when I, I recognized the name when, uh, when he got up, and then afterwards, I went and told him. And he says, your, Robin Chivington is your father? Oh, my God, can I be that old? <laughs> okay, great story. Uh, you need to make him somebody really famous. <laughs> so, uh, I I also like that you mentioned the um, the connection with Harper Lee, definitely an Alabama uh, thing. And yeah, for I've always said that those two children in that movie were the best child actors in any movie I've ever seen. They were so real in um, Mary Badham and Philip Alford. And they were, I just loved watching those children in that movie. Yeah. Everybody else is a Hollywood actor. And those folks are just, those two children are so real. And the little boy that plays Dill, they're so real. There's so much fun to watch in that movie. And of course, you know, great movie and wonderful, um, you know, experience in general. So... I want to get into, since we started with creativity, your writing process, because this is a very well-developed, very well-researched, phenomenally so, and robust book. Can I ask how many words it ended up being? It's just under 400,000 words. Oh, my word. Yeah. Well, it was longer, but I had to shorten it because my publisher said it was just too long. <laughs> That's, you know, I really needed to, I mean, it would be, the longer it is, the more expensive it is to publish, number one. And so it needed to stay within the, the, uh, the normal price point. Uh, and also within the, the length that would, you know, that readers will read because readers are notoriously they have a notoriously short attention span, you know, thanks to internet and, you know, in our, uh, our world today. And so, um, although I still like to read huge, enormous volumes, um, the average reader likes something they can sit down and read in a, and, you know, a, a, a night or a couple of days. They like to get on the subway or the, you know, the train or the bus at, you know, read something on the way to work and finish it on the way home. So, um, yeah, it had, it had to be shorter. But this is not one that you can read on the on your way to work. <laughs> it's a, a bit longer than that. Well, that's why that's why Kindles are good, though. You know, yeah. I'm saying people should buy it on Kindle. I'm just saying that 
for a longer, I've read a lot of longer works and then you just have it and you don't have to necessarily so, have it all. Yeah. So, uh, so tell me about your process in writing this book. Well, um, as you mentioned, it, it, uh, there's a lot of research that goes into whether it's historical fiction or nonfiction. Uh, the careful research is the key to a story set in the past. So that's where I begin. And I have to create a world for my characters to live in. So details for the specific time period have to be accurate down to, you know, the little details on their clothing, how they wore their hair and, and speech because colloquialism, slang, the way people speak changes over the years. So I have to get into all of that nitty gritty. And, um, but then I also ask myself, what is my point in writing the story? And I jot down all my thoughts in a notebook designated just for that. I don't, I don't like to make little scribbles on paper, although I do that, that they all have to go into that notebook so I can keep everything together. And um, once I have my basic ideas, I create an outline to organize my thoughts and also my story structure. That's one of the biggest parts of the outline, the biggest reasons for it, because there are different methods to that organization. Uh, one of the most classic ones is called The Hero's Journey. Uh, Joseph Campbell in the 1980s, he identified that and popularized it. Um, and you know that's what I followed to, to write Snowbird Mountain. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know what that is, some good book and movie examples that use Hero's Journey are Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, The Star Wars, Indiana Jones, The Hunger Games. Uh, so all of those, it's, they're all adventures, and this book is an adventure. So after I create my characters, I give them faces and personalities. I have to know, I have to know in my mind exactly what they look like and make them real. And so... Even though as my story develops, the characters may evolve and sometimes the story changes direction, that's okay because I believe it's important to remain open and fluid as the story unfolds because these characters, these people in my mind come alive. And, I, and then, you know, once that happens, I let them tell me where to take the story. And so... At the same time, I go back to my outline periodically to make sure I've covered my key points. And I revise constantly because of that, because it's not just me writing the story anymore. I have a whole cast of characters in the, you know, right here in my office with me. And then we're all writing together. Um, there is that. And then belonging to a good writer's group helps me with that. Mm -hmm. Yes, which we're going to get to in a minute, but I wanted to... Um... I wanted to emphasize what you said about the outline. I mean, if you go to writers groups or writers conferences, they'll say, well, there's two types of writers. There's those who outline and then there's the pantsers that they okay. can sit down and, and start typing or writing on the seat of their pants if, if, through the seat of their pants kind of, you know, it just, it comes to them and they put it down. And uh, for it, for anything that's going to be set in his history, because I've just finished one that's, set during 1918 you can't make mistakes you can't I, I see this in movies all the time where the the hairdo or the way people talk or the the attitudes they have are so not what would have been at that time <laughs> you know that, that i just ah, just drives me nuts 
And so that's one thing about your book. It is so clearly researched down to everything is what was going on in this civil war and post-civil war. And you also have the Cherokee element in it. Right. Much. And that the other element that I won't get into because it's part of the story and I don't want to give it away and, and everything. So uh, you had to do so much research to make sure it's authentic. You know, it's authentic. Yeah. Because if anybody is reading it, read something and says, that didn't happen then. You know, they're going to be out of the story and they're, you know, it's going to mess up their reading experience. And so it, it's really important to, to get all those details right. And I know Jumpmaster uh, does a lot of uh, publishing of fantasy. Fantasy, brain. right. Uh-huh. And the the world, the word they always use is world building. And even in historical fiction, you're still building a world. That's right. You're rebuilding it in a sense because it, it, it has to align with historical reality, you know, who was president. I've read books that were supposed to be good and it was set in a certain year and they had the president wrong. <laughs> I think, come on, people, that's not that hard. How'd they get through? And it, so you are, you're still building a world, but you have to take in a whole lot of other things than that. And, and that being that case, um, is Jumpmaster going to more of a historical fiction or are you sort of, they liked your work so much that they? Well, yeah. they have um, a couple of other historical fiction writers. Um, I wasn't the first, but I think I was the second um, or third at the very you know most, but there are, there are more now. So they are expanding. They have a lot of romance writers. So some, yeah, I think they started with uh, science fiction and, and uh, fantasy because that's what they like to write. The, the two owners are writers themselves, and that's their genre. So the, their um, writers that they began with, that's what they wrote. Uh, but now they're expanding because you really need to if you want to grow. So, um, yeah, I have, you know, they, they, are really happy that I came on <laughs> because I helped them. I helped them with that, and I hope that you know that um, my d- book does well and sells a lot. So that will encourage them to, you know, to um, bring on more historical fiction writers. And you know, thinking about publishers, a lot of people who want to write don't understand the publishing end of it. That it's a business. And that they're taking a risk on a writer, exactly putting, putting an investment in them of time and resources, and it has to be good from the get go. I mean, obviously, anything will need some editing, but it has to be good. They can't they can't rewrite the book for you, you know. And I think that some people who are getting into writing don't really understand it from a publisher's point of view, and. Um, once you get a publisher and you understand that you're like gung ho for them, <laughs> you want to put, you know, you want to put their name out there. Said, yeah, these are my people, and and uh, I want to support them in everything they're doing, so that um, obviously I will be supported too. So, which brings me to the question of, as you brought up, writers groups and um, the experience of being in one. And we, so everyone knows. 
you and I are in the same writers group. We meet in Catoosa County. We are a group that is affiliated with the Chattanooga Writers Guild. And I have been with the group off and on since 2011. And you have been with that group since when exactly, Deborah? I, I'm not sure. It's at least six years because it took me six years to, to uh, write the book and get it published. Okay. So, uh, and I joined the group when I decided to write that book because I knew I couldn't handle that one on my own. It was going to be too big. And I needed, and I also wanted, uh, it was bigger, you know, than the ones I'd written before because the memoirs were basically written for the family. And yeah. They, yeah, they were self-published, but they, you know, I didn't take them out and, you know, try to sell them to other people who didn't know the family. They were written, you know, for a specific purpose and uh, then distributed among the family members. And so there was a, that was very different than, than what I wanted to do here because my friend, I asked my friend about it when I told her, this is going to have to be historical fiction, not nonfiction, because there are too many holes here. I'm going to have to, you know, invent everything because you don't know and your sisters don't know. And so if no one can tell me and nothing was written down, I'm going to have to recreate that world. And she said, fine. I said, well, if I'm going to do that, then I want more than just your family <laughs> to read it. She says, that's fine. She said, she said, I would love for everyone to know about it. So when I told her that it was going to be her great-grandfather first and not her mother and, and aunts, she said, that's great because you're a wonderful writer. She'd already read things that I had written over because I'd known her for 40 years. You know, I've known her a very long time. And she was one of the few people I ever showed anything to. And um, so she, she says, you should, you know, that's what I'd like for you to do. And um, so um, what was the question? <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, you, you did answer it. It's, it's how, you, how you got into our writer's group. How'd you find out about us through oh, that guild? Oh, through, uh, through the Chattanooga Writer's Guild. I joined the guild first and I, I attended meetings for a couple of years before that. And so I knew about the various writers groups, but I wasn't ready to join one yet. And because I didn't feel comfortable showing my writing to anyone. But then I realized if I was going to do this that I and I needed more help, then I needed a group. And uh, a lot of the writers groups with the guild are specific to a certain genre. And the writers group that we belong to, you can write anything. And so... Um, there was that. They were also closer to my house than you know, a lot of the others. And they met at a time of day that was convenient to me. There were just a lot of factors. Okay. And, and, and when I attended the first meeting, they were an older group too. Uh, a lot of, there's one right here in St. Elmo where I live, but they're, they're very young. And uh, I knew I wouldn't fit in with them. And they were going to be writing. I mean, they wrote fantasy and science fiction, <laughs> mostly in romance. Not that not what I was interested in, and so um, when I attended that first meeting, I felt like I had found a home, and I was I was so excited. <clears throat> I I never talk the first time when I'm around strangers, you know, when I first meet them, but the, you couldn't shut me up in that meeting. <laughs> it's like they were old friends, right? Well, that's how our group is. They are they are they are fabulous as far as I'm concerned. They really are helped me so much so you know 
uh, I know different writers groups uh, might operate differently. Ours does not. We don't do oral readings, which I don't understand that process anyway. Why you would come and listen to people read orally uh, because it's on paper. It's on a page <laughs> and you need to see that. Um, but do you, what are the benefits you find from the writer's group and in, in the process that we go through? Well, they're very specific. Um, and, I, and, I, and that is because we don't do an oral reading. Uh, we write down, I mean, we, we uh, send 10 pages, up to 10 pages of uh, whatever we're working on to the group, uh, email it, and the Sunday before each meeting, our meetings are on Thursdays, um, we have an opportunity to read everything that uh, each person has written and to go over it, you know, with a fine-tooth comb and find all the, uh, just find what it needs. We don't do line-by-line -line editing specifically. We, we look at... Um, continuity and flow, sentence structure, things like that, important things. And so at home, we can, you know, convey the, the details of what, a, you know, what we see that a story might need. But then when we meet in our meetings, because there are so many of us and, and so many of us are writing uh, right now, there have been times when only there were only a few, uh, we go over the, the, the major points and we discuss it and we have the best discussions and so what benefits me is that it's like a group you know uh think tank everyone you know it's like a, a collective of very very talented and not knowledgeable authors looking at what i've written and discussing it and uh sharing opinions and thoughts and maybe it would be better if you wrote it this way and what do you think about that and i, I love it when we get into that because um, that's when I learned the most. And I have learned so much from these people over the years. My writing has improved exponentially. It's just amazing. They're wonderful. Oh, I agree. And, you know, like I said before, other groups have different processes, but I can't imagine using a different process than what we do. No. I, you know, the, uh, if for one thing, the, when when we send back with with comments the we do it digitally of course through email we send those back to the the writers and the group we can say things in the private you know return comments that we maybe wouldn't want to say in a exactly. setting I, I don't mean things that are derogatory i just mean you know we might want to say this doesn't hit me quite well for this reason exactly you know? How do you think a reader would uh, respond to this? And one of the big things that I think helps is that we ask, why are you writing this? Who is this for? You know, because a lot of times people will want to write, but they don't have an audience in mind. Exactly. Or a leadership in mind and, and, or a real purpose. It's just my thoughts on paper. And, you know, that's, that's not going to be enough, really. It, even if you don't want it published, but you want other people to see it, you still need to have a purpose and an audience focus and all these kinds of things. So the writer's group does that. So I think our process is is very helpful. And and like you, I can't imagine having a better group of readers. They're not all literature professors. You know, they're not uh, people who, who would have read everything that ever um, was published, 
but they are very close readers, would I say. Yeah, and they, they are. Things, and they see things, and you just, wow, that's it, just profound, and how did I miss that? And, you know, very good. Mm-hmm. So I, now this is not a, not a commercial for uh, our group to get more people because we already have as many. We already have enough. Yeah. The reason I brought this up is to say the importance of a writer's group, you know, Mm -hmm. but it has to be, first of all, there has to be trust, you know, that everybody has each other's best interests in mind. There's no, now she might get this public, but you know, we, we trust each other. We know we have each other's best interests in mind. And that's developed over time. And we're honest. Sometimes things are said that not ugly, but just, oh, yeah, that, that isn't good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Including we're honest, but we're also kind and constructive. Right. Absolutely. And that has to be there. There has to be structure in the writer's group. There has to be um, the, the honesty and um, things like that. So I... I, I'm a firm believer in, in them for people who seriously want to write. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you have anything else to say about that. So, uh, so I would recommend people do that, but start your own groups because we have too many. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I want to, I want to kind of wrap this up and ask you some questions about your reading. Who are some writers that you like to read and, I got this from another podcast called The Habit, which is I listen to every week and I uh, re- recommend it. Who is a writer who makes you want to write? Well, <clears throat> boy, I <laughs> when um, I thought about this a little bit, um, and well, I've already mentioned Harper Lee, but she only wrote, you know, she didn't write an awful lot, but Ken Follett has been one of my favorite authors for many years. Um, besides historical fiction, I also like spy thrillers. And um, he's written thrillers like Eye of a Needle and Code Zero. But his historical fiction is absolutely fabulous. And uh, his Kingsbridge series, is that is what influenced me to write historical fiction. Uh, I love Pillars of the Earth. And then uh, when I read World Without End, I was up late every night reading it, unable to put that book down. And then uh, probably 3 a.m. one night, I read the last page and I sat up in bed and I said out loud, that's what I want to write. And I, I finally had a direction. And so that, yeah, so uh, I love Ken Follett because he inspired me. And so while he's British, my absolute favorite all-time authors are all Southern. And um, so from William Faulkner to Truman Capote um, and uh, Flannery O'Connor, but then also more contemporary authors like Ron Rash and Sharon McCrum and Charles Frazier, you know, who wrote Cold Mountain and Arena. Um, yeah, but I also like ru- classical Russian authors. And, and I said before, I, I can I can handle a huge volume. <laughs> and so um, a couple of years ago, I read uh, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, yes, Dostoevsky and Anna Karenina Tolstoy. 
I've started War and Peace a couple of times. I haven't gotten through it, but one day I'll finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so they're not uh, their novels are long and they can be really dense, but they are definitely worth the patience and dedication to read them. They're 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 incredible. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I you know I'm occasionally pick up a science fiction uh, novel or science fiction book and once in a while, you know, well, science fiction once in a while, fantasy more often because I enjoy fantasy. I'm currently reading, I, I read The Hobbit over the hol- Christmas holidays, um, even though I had not read that before. I have read a couple of The Lord of the Rings, and then my sister gave me a, a box set of the four, you know, three Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So I read The Hobbit, and I'm working my way through Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so really enjoying that, because the, the movie's good, but I like, you know, the, the book is always better. Mm-hmm. Sure. I... I really appreciate your answer because I I didn't know what you would say and you you just gave us a list of all the greats. <laughs> now my advice to people is you you need to read the greats. You need to go back and read the the novelists of the 19th century and see how they uh, did did what they did and and they built the foundation of what the Ken Follett's and then the others would do, you know. Um so that was that's amazing. Yes, I, I appreciate that answer. Well, I am so pleased that you could, we could talk today. And I am excited that we, uh, that your book is out. And as I said, the, the link to where it can be purchased is in the show notes. Are you having any public appearances? Not yet. Uh, it hasn't been that long since the book was published, um, but I intend to do some, to arrange some with the Writers Guild, since they, they do a uh, Bards and Noble uh, open mic thing once a month at uh, Bards, yeah, at Bards and Noble, and uh, they have others you know, at some uh, breweries around town. Uh, most of that is poetry, but occasionally they'll, they'll do an open mic uh, reading. There's a... Um, uh, book fair coming up at the end of April, I believe. Maybe, maybe you and I are going together. <laughs> and, yeah, um, and so I'll do. I'll do a, a, an open mic, you know, reading there. And um, I intend to go up to Robbinsville, North Carolina, uh, because that's the setting for the uh, much much of the story. And I'm going to be doing that there, having a uh, a big thing at uh, the library. It town. They don't have any bookstores. They're very small. It's a very small town, but they have a library. And I talked to the uh, librarian there, and she was just like, "Wow, yes, please, 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 come and do it." Uh, so I haven't. That's not carved in stone, but I, it's going to happen. And uh, so, aside from that, I I don't know what else I'm doing. Okay. Well, again, thank you uh, for being with us, Stevro. Shivington Seven, and look for her book, Fall from Snowbird Mountain. Thank you for listening. <laughs>